Episode 188, everybody, with the powerhouse speaker, concert pianist, mentor, and leadership coach. Please welcome the one and only Jade Simmons. The Optimal Life. Jade Simmons, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you do quite a bit of bit of different things and uh, very diverse and you, you've got all these different platforms and, and focuses and missions. One thing that it looks like you've been doing is um, really expanding your speaking presence over the over the years, incorporating your music with the the speaking. So let's start there. I mean, what is it like before you get in front of a crowd? What are the, the feelings that you have, the butterflies, so to speak? Yeah, you know what's well, changed over the years, right? When I was solely, you know, working to be a concert artist and, you know, I'm blessed to have had a wonderful career in the beginning where it was just straight ahead concerts. You know, the feelings were, man, I hope I don't miss a note or have a memory slip. And, uh, you know, you were always so worried about impressing the audience and really sounding like you deserve to be in this grand stage you were you were on. And over the years, as I started incorporating more speaking into my music experiences and then being brought in to speak and bringing music to be as part of the speaking experiences, my feelings shifted to really caring about what was happening in the audience members. I started caring less about impressing them and really began to focus on impacting them. So all nerves really went away and now it's pretty much sheer anticipation. I can't wait to to get on stage. What advice do you have for people? Public speaking is most people's number one fear. Yeah. So how do people get over that fear? What are some tips and tricks? Well, I think the main thing is to to stop putting this label of public speaking on it. I think if we most of us are not afraid to have a conversation with people we care about. So if you can do two things, somehow make yourself care about the audience that you're speaking to, really think of them as people that you want to get to know and that you want to have a positive effect on, and then really think of yourself as having a conversation, not as performing for them. You know, mm. most audiences aren't waiting on you to fail. As a musician, you 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 build it up in your head that everybody's waiting for you to make a mistake. And they truly just want to be taken on a really awesome experience. And if you can convince yourself that those things are true, it drastically changes the atmosphere uh, that you get to step into. I wonder why that is. Why do you think that is? When we're standing on stage and you're looking out at a group of, whether it's 100 people, 1,000 people, whatever, Mm-hmm. Why do we innately have that feeling like these people are judging me? Well, what is it? Yeah, and I don't, you know, I think the judging thing is the, is the human aspect that we've placed on it. But if you look at the science, I mean, neurologically, we were, we're really powerfully responding to what would have been danger back in the day, right? Like if you think about caveman times, you know, you came out of the cave and then it was like game on. You were just hoping to not get swiped away by a saber-toothed tiger. So that fear we have is very natural and it's supposed to be a signal, right? And I think we've allowed those those emotions to be things that we wear and absorb versus signals that we understand. And so uh, for musicians, again, we would come on stage and that piano would look to my you know, native brain like a saber-toothed tiger. And so my heart would start beating fast, the blood would leave my fingers to help my heart pump harder so I could run faster. And a lot of that was to be able to tell my brain, hey, that's just a piano. Mm. Those are just audience members. They are not going to eat you. Um, <laughs> they just really want to enjoy this time. So a lot of it is that mental kind of re-understanding of what the situation is. And I think over over time, 
you know, especially with the rise of social media, there is a lot of judgment out there. People are waiting. They're waiting to like rank us, like, dislike, you know, thumbs down. Sure. Um, so we're, we're not we're not faulty in that assumption. I think the key now is deciding that it's more important to you to impact and you'll stay there as long as you can to impact versus fleeing as fast as you can to avoid judgment. So what what was it you, you were doing? You were a classic pianist, mm-hmm. classical music. And then what happens as you're doing these performances that makes you go, oh, I, I think there's more to be done with this. There's more impact. How does that transition happen? You know, I think like so many powerful transitions, it started with something that, you know, you look back on it and it'd be easier to say, man, that was an accident. Um, I started speaking in between the music to kind of catch my breath. I was overperforming. I was programming these huge, long pieces, trying to impress my audiences to death. And I was basically killing myself in the process. And so to, you know, to kind of catch my breath and be able to keep going, I would stop and tell stories. But I would talk about the composers and tell them things they didn't know about Mozart or things they didn't know about Liszt or Chopin. And the audience would become delighted in those stories. They would loosen up. In turn, I would loosen up. Um, and so kind of by, by accident in many ways, that storytelling experience found its way into my musical concerts to the point where I became known for the speaking as well. And many music organizations brought me in because I could also speak. Because especially classical musicians, we spend hours away from people just perfecting a few passages in a large piece of music. We forget how to talk and how to communicate across the footlight. So that made me a bit of a standout, just being the, the girl who talked. Bring in sure. the piano girl who can talk. Mm. Um, and that opened up lots of different opportunities, which eventually led to straight ahead speaking opportunities. Um, and then I, I started experimenting with bringing the piano in. Uh, I'm a Yamaha artist, so they provide a piano for me uh, wherever I go. And now I use music to really drive the points home that I'm making. But what are the things that you're speaking on now? It's more related to life and self-improvement, self-development, correct? Uh, in, in some ways, uh, when I'm doing uh, on my own platforms, you'll see things that are more coaching related and personal and professional development. I'm brought in a majority of the time to speak to uh, you know big corporations. So think Hershey or Nationwide or NBC Universal or, or Beachbody. Uh, and a lot of times they're bringing me in to speak to leadership uh, and talking about kind of a new way to lead, this, this concept of servant and purpose-based leadership. A lot of times I'm brought in to speak on innovation because I incorporate a lot of technology into my own performance. I create beats. I even rap <laughs> in some cases. You rap. Yeah, I go from Rachmaninoff to rap uh, in one concert experience. And so that the the irony, right, that innovation that started to happen in my own career, uh, non-arts-based corporations are bringing me in to talk about what reinvention looks like. How do you continually reinvent and how does that yield for you new audiences to impact? And then what do you do when you have that influence and that attention? How do you motivate and activate people? So a lot of times I'm brought in to speak on leadership development, uh, communication, as well as branding and reinvention. Drop a bar or two for us, Jay. Don't tease uh, us. <laughs> there's a rap that I've become known for, at least in the corporate circles, called uh, Black Beethoven. Mm. And uh, I wrote it kind of based on the experience of what it was like growing up being a African-American female classical concert pianist. And there's a story I always tell about running into people who were just surprised that I was in these classical music settings. And sometimes they would say, um, 
silly things. So I'll give you I'll give you a verse. Um, Please do. I was 12 years old, trying to find my way in. Thought I'd enter a competition. I'd play Beethoven. They went full when I hit the keys real fast. Really, they were worried that their precious Steinway wouldn't last. I had them all won the trophy in my right hand, but on my left was a seersuckered old man. He looked me dead in my cute little round face, told me with a smile I was a credit to my own race. And so I continue to tell Damn. the story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I talk a lot in corporations about the power of your own story and how you think your story is unique to you. And when you tell it, you find out so many people relate to it and learn from it. So even now, that. How story, did you know that you had a cute round face at such a young age? <laughs> that was my question. <laughs> That's a good question. No one's ever asked me. I'm going by the fact that people like to pinch my cheeks. So ah, fair enough. That's, that's a good sign. <laughs> You mentioned uh, you speak on leadership, and you mentioned the servant leader uh, relationship dynamic. Let's get into some of that. What what exactly is that, and what are the things that you're talking about? One of there's not a stage that I'm on that I don't say uh, what I call the purpose statement, which is your purpose is not the thing you do. Your purpose is the thing that happens in others when they do when you do what they do. So it's like when you start doing what it is that you feel called to do. Um, something happens in other people. So I went from thinking I was playing the piano to impress audiences to understanding something was happening to them during this concert experience. So my purpose wasn't to play the piano. It was what was happening in the audience when I played the piano. So when you think of leadership in that way now, you're not leading them because you're the leader. You're offering leadership that's going to allow them to become more of who they are. And there's, man, just a, a lessening of pressure that happens when you realize your job really is to share the spotlight. Um, we were just in uh, with the Florida HR State Council, and we had this wonderful moment where I brought, I think, four different people up on stage, and none of them <laughs> played piano. Maybe one of them used to play when they were 10 or something. Um, and I do this often because I think it's important for people to see themselves in pressure cooker situations and on the spot we end up making music together and of course the piano is usually one person at the instrument and we make space for five so there's then again how do you as leader find spaces for people so they can come in and, and play their own music add to contribute to the music that's being made and then there's a moment where I step away from that and let them just do what they do and that's the hard part as a leader right you have this vision of how you want it to play out and I'll tell you, there were some rough moments, Nate. You know, some people couldn't keep the rhythm and some were playing <laughs> in the wrong key. And I had to really keep my hands off for a bit just to help them find their own groove. And there's a perfect moment where I re-enter um, and take the music to a new level because that's what I'm there to do. And so, you know, it's been so rewarding to be able to combine music and inspiration and mindset strategy and watch people really walk away, um, not just feeling good, but feeling like they really have tools that they can work with now to to create some powerful change in their lives. Oh, that's beautiful. You said something that really struck me. You said that your leadership is not necessarily you just, it's not just black and white, like the message that you're sending or the experience that you're giving is not just going to have the same effect on each and every person. Everyone's going to take something differently away from the leadership is kind of what you're saying, correct? Yeah, and it's so powerful and it's freeing, right? You know, we spend so much time trying to say everything perfectly. And I know my own business, 
we're always tweaking the systems and the communication. We, we realize that we each defined urgently different, differently. And I mean, man, you got to get on the same page about what urgent means. And so a lot of that work is getting to have the same language. But I think the beauty is in realizing that, you know, you can be doing one thing all in uh, with the same focused mind and still have really different, beautiful things break out for each person who's participating. So in that vein, the leaders, the leader's main job is to get everybody to the proverbial table so that they can, you know, bring a dish that's going to really make a contribution. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredible. That's and that's so true and so powerful uh, because not one size fits all. You're able to impact people in ways that you're not even intending to. That's right. You don't know what they're dealing with or what they're going through. You have ten people sitting around that table. They're all going to have a different dish at the end of your leadership. Oh my gosh! You know, it's it's um it's freeing. It's also a little scary. We'll get you know inboxes of people who will say. I quit my job after your performance today. And you're like, whoa, that's not what I meant. But then they tell you, man, I, I went on this journey. I, I was, by the time you came, I'd already been thinking about doing this thing. So yours was the confirmation I needed. So, you know, it's a, it's a powerful responsibility, right? As a leader, that the things you say may cause people to create new bonds. It may cause them to sever ties. It may cause them to have a have a whole 180 and go in a different direction. And as long as you can really um, know for sure that your intention and your motivation as a leader was pure and right, it's okay, whatever those reactions are. And that's a powerful thing to see happen. Absolutely. So what are some of those things that you're doing? You, you're talking, that's a great example. These people are, are leaving your seminar or event <laughs> yeah. and they're, they're going, they're letting the chains off and they're going and making a huge life change, life decision. What's yeah. that message that you're giving these people that are making them react that way? A lot of times it's hold up. It's in that purpose statement. You know, I think we as a society have, we use a lot of words. Uh, we, we, we kind of use a lot of words wrongly, and then we also use them in the wrong place. So we we will say purpose, passion, um, calling, destiny, and we'll all think it's, it's all the same, and it's not. And I think one thing that I help people do is clarify purpose. And there's something so wonderfully dangerous when you understand that you have already probably been operating in purpose, you just didn't identify it as that. And what if you were to live your whole life in that space? What would that look like? And so people are kind of waking up and going, oh my God, I'm in the right space. I just haven't been doing all the things I could be doing. Or some people are saying, oh my gosh, I've been trying so hard to fit in this space and this place has no room for the purpose that I feel called to do. So I have to leave, you know, and you start to feel allergic to the boxes that you've been in for so long. So people are having their own epiphanies about what it is they are capable of doing most of them are realizing they haven't even scratched the surface and now they're anxious to really get out and make up for lost time. You're like the, the log jam to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wow. A lot of people will say the Energizer Bunny, you know, I'm activating them. When we tell corporations what's different, you know, no shade to the other speakers that are out there, but you know, as I'm telling parts of my story in this presentation, my whole goal is to get you to look at your own story. You know, we, we, we have fun from guaranteeing standing ovations now. And the reason we can do that is because we know they're not standing anymore because they're impressed by whatever I just played on the piano. And the music is fun. The music is on purpose, stunning and fabulous and, and feisty and all that good stuff. But by the end, they're standing because they feel good. And we know that there's usually about 
eight, 18 minutes in, I know that I've got them to a place where they are really examining themselves. You know, they're impressed for that whole first few minutes because I'm playing the heck out of this instrument or now I've turned it from concert hall to nightclub so they're having fun but by the end they're starting to see possibility in themselves and, and I'll tell you what to be able to package that now and give that to as many people as possible is probably the most rewarding job in the world. You mentioned effective communication uh, between your own leaders your own committee basically uh, there's a different everyone has a different definition for urgent that's one tiny example so Talk a little bit more about effective communications uh, as leaders, diversity, inclusion, having difficult but necessary conversations, as you say. Elaborate on that, please. Yeah, you know, for obvious reasons, DNI is, you know, it was already becoming a big topic. We had created a keynote specifically for it in 2019. Then, of course, COVID and George Floyd happened, and politics happened, and everything was kind of bust wide open. And so a lot of times now I'm brought in to speak on transformative conversations. And I am not a fan of eggshells, Nate. I am not a fan of starting from a place of obligation or a place of guilt. And so my whole uh, mission with diversity and inclusion talks has been, can we just start from a place of exploration? Can I just get really curious about who Nate is? Like who the heck is Nate? Regardless of the color of his skin, his background, his experience, who is he? And if I can really develop a genuine concentrated interest in who you are, then I become interest, interested in all the things that make you who you are. Um, and so we've been having a lot of success uh, kind of spinning the topic on its head a bit. Uh, I know there's a lot of emphasis on sensitivity training and really focusing in on things like microaggressions and unconscious bias. But I think if we're honest, we're already to a point now where just the phrase DNI is is creating some internal eye rolling. If we really want it to be something that's not a trend or an obligation, we have to shift it now to really just deciding that we think people are meaningful and we mm -hmm. find them meaningful enough to find out more about who they are. Um, it's not about, and I will tell you this as a person who society would identify as a minority. I never call myself a minority. I believe you're never the minority. You're always the standout. So if I'm in a room and I'm the only one who looks like me or talks like me, I must be there for a reason. And it's a good reason. But one of the things we're seeing is that no, no person who's considered a minority wants to be invited to the table out of obligation. Nobody wants to be in a room because they have to be in the room. You want to be in the room because the people who were there before you couldn't imagine that room without you. Mm. And so it's, you know, those twofold shifts. Can we get leadership now to really understand what inclusion means? It's not about quotas. It's about simply deciding now to value people beyond all the outer things. And then that other stuff will be the icing. When you really begin to value humans for being awesome humans, you end up with a more diverse room. It's just like a default <laughs> result. And so we're, we're having fun with that. Um, I love, it sounds funny, I love speaking about race. I love talking about stereotypes. I think many of them are hilarious and I think we should lean into uh, laughing at ourselves a bit. Um, I always had my own stereotypes as a musician. If there were Asian people in my audience, I assume they all played piano and knew they every don't. note I was playing. And that's because everybody I went to school with was Asian or Russian for the most part, Ukrainian, Japanese, or Korean. And so my stereotype type came from a very real experience. Um, and it was always funny to meet them afterwards and assume they knew every note of the Rachmaninoff and they would say, oh my gosh, I've never played piano a day in my life. I just came <laughs> because I love Rachmaninoff, you know? And so You just ruined it for me, Jade. I, I thought they did the same. I thought they only played piano. 
Exactly, right? And I'm and I think it's fun to kind of ask ourselves, where did these things come from? Why do we think this way? What truth is in these things? What falsehood is here? Um, and I think they make for enlightening conversations and you leave the room really knowing people a lot better than you did when you started. Yeah, that's fantastic. Give us an example. I mean, that's so true, though, what you said, the stereotype thing. It's like, where do these come from? These came from centuries ago of people telling stories and it just kind of getting legs and being carried on from generation to generation to generation. And we come up with these stereotypes that are so often nowhere near close to reality. So, and you know, and, and sometimes they are though, Nate, right? Like I like I said, I went to school with incredibly talented uh Korean girls for the most part. So some of my best friends in college were um a Korean girl, a Russian girl, um, and a Ukrainian guy. And I remember because that's who that's when I went to piano competitions, that's who was there. There were not any other black kids for the most part, not even a lot of white kids. At the top level, there were Asian kids. And one of my Korean friends said, that's because many of the of the Asian families who have the money and can afford to come over will send their kids to these incredible schools to study music. But she says the the large majority of everybody in China is not over there playing the piano. Sure. You know, but she says you're seeing a microcosm of a small representation yes, that's of, of people who have a certain amount of means or a certain amount of opportunity, and they're in these high-level places with you where you are, so that's all you see. I'll be really transparent and tell you, um, my daughter, she just turned eight, and you know, I have a lot of friends who take their daughters with them to the nail salon. I refused to do so until she was of a certain age because I didn't want her only encounter with Vietnamese women to be people who were doing her nails, who were washing her feet. I didn't want that to be her first and only encounter. That's so interesting. Until, yeah, I, because because I know that there are some kids who that's their only encounter with Asian people is at wow. the nail salon. So it was important for me for her to be of an age where we could go somewhere, interact. Um, I always try to learn a few, don't ask me to say it now, but I always try to ask whoever's working on my nails to teach me a few phrases um, in Vietnamese. And so I'll do that with my daughter. We have a a nanny that is from Colombia, so she will speak Spanish to her. Um, And my daughter mistakenly thought that everybody who spoke Spanish, we live in Texas, eats Tex-Mex, right? That's all she knows. We go to Tex-Mex almost every Sunday. So she has that. So these were things where we had to say, this is your limited experience, nothing wrong with it, but that's not everyone else's, right? Maria is from Colombia. That's different than being from Mexico. It's different from being from Argentina or from Spain. You know, so I think what we should be looking for now are teaching moments. Um, I say a lot to audiences, I no longer take offense. Um, I take note. And I take note of moments to be able to teach out of awkward situations. And I've had a lot of people say a lot of things to me that uh, could have been a war of words. And instead I had to kind of take a breath and say, what are they trying to say? Um, oh, that's so such that- a good uh, piece of advice though for any parent. Most of us overlook those little things that you just thought about. 99.9% of people will not think that way. They won't okay. think about the perception that's being created in these in the youth, our children. And uh, what you did is such a good lesson for any parent that's listening. Like, be mindful of the atmosphere that you're exposing your kids to because this is where the bias and stereotypes are developed. That's what you're saying. That's it. Because I know, obviously, when I go to the nail salon, I know there are Asians in every um, sphere that I'm in. 
But she wouldn't know that because they're not at her school for the most part. Um, we're, we're in a certain part of um, north side of Houston where there aren't many African-American families. There's not a lot of diversity. So when she goes to school, she's one of the only. I know she's not in school with, with many Hispanic kids, with, with many Asian kids. So I'm mindful that her experiences when she has them are broad um, and that she's Absolutely. understanding that her experience is only one. That's fantastic. Give us an example that you say having difficult but necessary conversations, maybe maybe something that you've had recently, a recently difficult conversation, but one that was necessary. Can you give us a little example of something? Uh, <clears throat> I read a book, I think of the name of the author now, I think it's Henry Cloud or McLeod called Necessary Endings. <laughs> I recommend that book to anyone who asks for a book recommendation because it totally liberated me in avoiding some of the conversations I was avoiding having in business. So one of the big things that I was noticing that my nature is the nature of a coach. So sometimes as the boss, I was coaching people who needed direction, right? Or giving people latitude who needed structure. Um, and so I had to begin to learn how to, because my job is in encouraging people, it was always difficult for me to tell them what they were doing wrong or to tell them why it was negatively affecting the business. And so I went kind of on a mission for a year of intentionally um, finding the time to have these difficult conversations. And I'll tell you what, that period radically changed my relationships. I feel like people know that when I'm speaking to them now, that I'm not blowing smoke, that if I compliment them, it's it's a really true compliment. But if I correct them, it's coming from a place of, of love and a desire for them to do well. And that for me to use coaching as a scapegoat, right? And then suddenly tell them a month later, hey, this isn't working out. That wasn't fair because they had been led to believe everything was powerful and wonderful. Um, so I had to actually teach myself um, how to give harder correction and redirection so that people could, again, this word comes back, flow in their purpose. And so now in our company, we tell you on day one, we want you to be with us for the rest of your life, but we don't think purpose works that way. So at any point, if your purpose starts to feel bigger than your position or bigger than the task we've assigned, you let us know. Let us see if we can grow that position. And if not, we will help you find out what the next step is for you. And I think if people are happy in purpose working for you, you get their best. If they feel like they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you'll get their worst. So I feel like it helps us all to constantly check in, have difficult conversations and find out what people need so you can actually help them get what it is they need to grow into who they need to be. And as these people continue to grow and they're following their purpose, they're finding it, they want to achieve more, they're high achievers. How do you help these people? What are some advice to help them get that next, that you call the, the next breakthrough? Yeah, when we talk about breakthrough, we talk a lot about kind of sniffing it out in advance. And one of the things that's always a good predictor of breakthrough is intense battle. So I, the people I coach I used to think it was weird when they started with me. I would get so excited when they would tell me about all the challenges and trials they were having. Um, and I'm smiling while they're telling me this miserable stuff. And I'm like, this must mean breakthroughs around the corner. Mm. Um, and so I always say only a worthy opponent is worthy to be opposed. And I think of breakthrough as a living being. So if breakthrough is, is checking on you. It's going to see how you're weathering this battle. It's going to see what new muscles you're building in it, what lessons you're learning. And you can count on whatever you just discovered to be needed in that next level of breakthrough. 
Um, so I spent a lot of time talking about how to position for that. And I think part of that is in realizing what life is happening, how life is happening for you. Um, that's, that's yeah, that's yeah. that's powerful. That's that's perfectly said. You're, the the breakthrough, the 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 challenge is the worthy opponent. That's it. And if it wasn't, it wouldn't give you that meaningful next level up. Um, based on what you're saying, it kind of goes back to where we were at the beginning. You have these anxieties of getting on stage and talking to people, and and how do you level up? You, you know, you fight through those, but. On the other side of those, after like after you do a, a killer presentation, oh. Jade, I'm sure you're on top of the world, even if you oh had all the butterflies God. in the world at the beginning. Oh, it's it's the most amazing high. Um, it's it's a it's a wonderful exhaustion that I call uh, being spent. So exhausted means you probably exerted yourself, and the the outcomes are a little questionable, and the results you can't quite see, uh, and you may have been pouring into people who didn't want what you had to give, but. To be spent means that you literally used your energy, your wisdom, your inspiration as currency, right? And people are gonna take that and really take it to the bank, so to speak. And when you see that happening, we'll see it on social media. You know, my team will track it and take some screenshots and we'll look and see what what are the comments they're saying. And if they spend too much time saying, you know, Jade was awesome, or I love the way she did this, or she did that, we go, okay, that's level one success. If they say, man, I feel this way and I'm going to try this and now I'm going to do this, then we go, okay, we did it. We can sleep easy. So that feeling, I'll tell you, it lasts and it carries you to the next event. Um, I'm a busy wife and mother as well as business owner and speaker and musician and all these things. So it's, it's easy to feel depleted. But one moment on stage like that, I'll tell you what, fills the tank up right away. Yeah, and it's always those events that come with angst. It's always the, the anticipation, the anxiety. It's easy to not want to put yourself in those situations, but you never feel that true thrill, that exhilarating feeling that you're talking about. If you stay just safe in life, in anything, if you stay vanilla and in the middle and you're afraid to you know, move away from the barriers, yeah, it might be comfy and cozy and, and fine, but boy, do you miss out on, on that exhilaration that you're talking about, the impact, that stimulation that you get every single time you make this impact. That's it, Nate. And I, I, unfortunately, I think the large majority of humans on this earth live and die without ever experiencing what you're talking about. And so my mission is that more people are ignited into that purpose. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to have to be honest, it's addictive. I mean, when you mm -hmm. get out there and you're challenging yourself or you're reinventing, I probably reinvent about every eight to 12 months at this point, it used to be every 18 months, but every eight to 12 months, we're adding something new or we're doing something different or we're going into another. Now that doesn't mean you're gonna be doing year. country music next, does it? Probably not gonna to get to ever get to country. No, probably won't yeah. get there. I wouldn't mind a, con a collaboration if it had to happen, but I, I probably, <laughs> that's, that's the one genre that I appreciate, um, but probably will never <laughs> create music for. Just making but sure. It, yeah, thanks for checking in. But I think reinvention for me means that there's a new space that we're breaking into. We did, you know, politics. We entered last year, and I'll tell you what, that was, whoo, that was an overnight oh, lesson. Geez. I'll tell you. Uh, but I'll tell you what we learned from that is we can take this message of purpose of helping people to be bigger and bolder. We can apply it to the cities we're in, the nation we live in, the world we live in. So we're, we're excited now and we're addicted to, like you said, that thrill of knowing that we're on the edge a bit, but we're going to see impact because of it. 
When have you uh, had a bad experience with one of your seminars or, or speaking engagements where it just didn't live up to what you expected? You were off. Yeah. We all have off days. Yeah. Have you had that? And if so, how do you come back from those? Here's why I'm really, really, really fortunate. I have never had an on-stage speaking experience that anybody would probably rate lower than a maybe nine. But personally, I've had ones where the crowd is standing, hooping and hollering, and I am just dying inside because for me it was a five or a six. Mm. And I'll tell you how, how that is, is it's easy as a performer to perform. So there's probably, all I gotta do is play a fast song, um, tell a few jokes, uh, make somebody cry. It's gonna be awesome for them. But there's something where, where I don't feel like I've prepared as hard as I could. Uh, one of my specialties in the corporate speaking world is how I customize. So my goal is that if, if I'm speaking to an HR group or a financial services group um, or a fitness group, you think I came out of your industry. And so we, we, we call it customized to death. We really customize like crazy. Um, and so if I don't do that, if my customization is sort of surface level, um, if, if my music is not as clean as it could be, I am knowing that it wasn't what I could give at the highest level. And what, what, what would depress me in that moment is worrying that there might've been some people I didn't get to or grab because of those deficits. They might be subtle on the outside, but for me, those are deal makers and deal breakers. So how I come back from that is I go back to remembering, wait, why am I doing this again? It's not to put on the really cool shoes, you know, or, or to play the really awesome music. It's really to have an impact. So I have to refocus like everybody else does when I have those off days. And I'll tell you, I had a whole season where I just was tired, Nate. I was really tired. Um, and I was feeling like I wasn't getting the same joy from it. And now I know that's a signal that there's something more I need to be doing either within that presentation or uh, within my business as a whole. Uh, so I'm able now to not go so, go so far down the rabbit hole there and I can go, okay, if I'm feeling this way, it's not logical because I love being on stage. I love being with these audiences. What What's this emotion really trying to tell me? So that kind of refocusing and analysis has really served me well over the years. This is incredible stuff. Uh, you obviously are, like I said at the beginning, very diverse. So talk, before we finish it up, talk a little bit about Jade Simmons, your your this whole thing that you have. What are some of the services you and your team offer? Yeah, we're so excited to be expanding our services. You know, I'm known mostly right now in the speaking world for my keynote presentations. We have some presentations that are considered my signature ones, and then we create some from scratch for different organizations. But we've added on some things this year that I'm very excited about. We're looking to go back deeper into many of these companies. I mean, let's be honest, Nate, you get on stage, you're there for an hour, everybody's, you know, all raw, raw, and feeling good. Then they have to catch a plane and go back to real life, right? And yeah, so it's the worst. It's, it's the worst. And a lot of them are charged with taking whatever I just gave them back to their organization. And we realized it really is not fair, right? Because they don't do what I do. And now they have to kind of figure out a way to filter this down. So we're creating programs that break down the breakthrough. We have we teamed up with a company called Pro Habits that's creating now for us these 21-day challenges that companies can tack on to the end of that keynote and help build that breakthrough. All those points we went through in an hour, over 21 days, you're working it into your organization. And uh, Pro Habits has had some incredible results where you're seeing new leaders kind of arise 
out of those challenges after the moment. Um, and we're also offering up my services as kind of coming in and being an interim chief inspiration officer. So a lot of times the CEO will say, I've been trying to drive that message home for two years and you just made it hit in an hour. Um, how do you do that? So we want to go back and help um, upper management. You got management. that swag, Jade. Yeah, well, you know, you listen, some of, it, some of it you just can't bottle, right? But <laughs> there's a lot of it that can be taught in terms of how to communicate a lot of the same themes. And so we're excited now to be going back deeper into corporations and um, helping them break down the breakthrough to see really long-term results. Oh, that's fantastic. There is something to it, though. It's There is something that's just natural for certain people. I don't yeah. care how much you train. Yes, you can definitely improve, especially when it comes to emotional intelligence and social awareness, those sure. things. But it's that ability, that innate ability to connect that some people just, it can't be taught. They're just right. at the highest of levels. You're right. You're right. I feel blessed with... Um it's kind of a sixth sense. So we had a moment where I went out into, always I go out into the audience and, you know, COVID shut a lot of that stuff down. So it's exciting for now things to be, I won't say getting back to normal, but allowing me to do a little bit of what I used to do. And so I go out off the stage into the audience and it's always a powerful moment because for probably 30 minutes, they've been watching me perform, right? Um, and it never fails wherever I'm walking in the audience I could touch someone, literally touch them on the shoulder or start speaking to them. That person always needed to hear exactly what I was going to say. Um, and I wow. just and I just kind of flow with it, move around the room, speak in a certain lives. We had some powerful emotional moments uh, the other day at this last event. And, you know, I was saying something to this woman that to her felt sort of prophetic. And so I asked the ladies around her, am I speak? is this her life right now? Am I saying the truth? And they were just all in tears because... I was saying what they all had been experiencing. And wow. so I, I know that there is something there that I've had that. Um, and so I, I try to incorporate that when I can. At the end of the day, <clears throat> Nate, people want to be, they really want to be seen. And yes. I think um, that may be that innate ability that I have is to be able to see people. The only issue is I usually see them a lot larger, bigger and bolder than they currently are. And so then my job is, can we close that gap between where you are now and where I see you um, and where I hope you'll be able to see yourself in the future. That's incredible stuff. Yeah, hopefully you are the, the, the mirror that they need um, and, and could ultimately see the same reflection and you could bring that out of them, the same thing that you're seeing. Uh, JadeSimmons.com, where else can people find you online? I spend a lot of time on Instagram at official Jade Simmons. And we're, of course, on LinkedIn and Facebook uh, at Jade Media. I love to interact uh, with, with former audience members, but I'm always uh, eager to chat it up with new audiences as well. Hey, Jade, thank you so much. We will link you in the show notes. Incredible stuff, continued success, and look forward to uh, seeing your next breakthrough, your next event, et cetera. Thank you again for today. Thanks for having me, Nate.